Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini and this episode is all about the ER. For some parents of special needs children, ER doctors and staff can wind up knowing our kids better than our family doctors or pediatricians. Of course, those trips can be very frightening for both the parents, the special needs child, and the siblings. What can parents do to minimize trips to the ER? When is a trip to the ER necessary, or is it something that can be handled by the child's regular physician? What can parents do to minimize their children's fears when they go to the emergency room? And what should parents do to make sure that their concerns are being met given the limited time that an ER doctor has when treating your child? Well, to get answers to those questions and much more information, we're fortunate to have a guest for this episode who knows a lot about the emergency room. Dr. Patricia Schultz is an emergency medicine-trained physician. After finishing her residency and practicing in the ER for a few years, she found her real passion was utilizing her medical training to help patients and families get the best medical care possible, as well as teaching medical students how to perform to the best of their abilities, while having the utmost empathy, respect, and compassion for their patients. Dr. Schultz is currently a healthcare consultant in the private sector and is working on writing her second book. And, full disclosure, Dr. Schultz and her family have been close friends of myself and my family for almost 20 years. We began our conversation by talking about the most common reasons why children wind up having to go to the ER. There are so many millions of reasons why children land in the emergency room, but the two most common are injuries and respiratory illness. In the younger ages, the respiratory illnesses such as asthma, croup, bronchiolitis, those Mm -hmm. predominate. And as you get older and you become more of a risk taker, then injuries become the more predominant reason. Another surprising, very common cause for uh, children to come to the emergency room is mental health issues, Uh, depression, changes in behavior, changes in mood, and that causes many parents to bring their children in for evaluation. Mm -hmm. Nope. But what about accidents, though? I mean, you know, it can happen with any family member, but there are some reasons why parents will take their kids to the ER that can be easily avoided, such as accidents and things like that. So what are, what are some t- uh, safety tips that parents could follow to help their kids stay safe? When I was going to medical school, they trained us in the emergency room that all accidents are avoidable. Mm-hmm. Well, as a parent of two boys, I can tell you that I have not found that to be the case. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, accidents... Some accidents really are accidents. But things that we commonly get concerned about that are avoidable are things like wearing your bike helmet so you avoid head injuries, Mm -hmm. Uh, wearing knee guards and wrist guards and elbow guards. And I don't know how many parents have had the experience that I have where their children really don't find them comfortable and don't want to wear them. Right. So... Some of the challenge I have found personally is finding the guards that are really comfortable, that they're willing to wear. Right. And that can take some shopping around. So certainly safety while on your scooter, on your bike. Trampolines are another big issue. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, I love trampolines. I think they're great exercise. They're a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. But children should not be left unsupervised out in the yard on trampolines. Right. They tend to take risks that we wouldn't allow, such as backflips and falling off because they're doing, you know, wild activities. Right. Uh, Trampolines should have the netting around them, and it should be in good shape. Those usually have to be replaced every, every season or every two seasons because they, you know, with the weather, they get weak. Right. But um, other forms of injuries that we see a lot, 
um, playground injuries, so certainly falls off playground equipment. Not always avoidable, but, but again, you know, parents keeping an eye out. I know myself, sometimes I get busy talking to another parent and I'm not watching as well as I could be. Uh, another injury cause are, especially the young children, are burn scalding injuries. Mm. So a really surprisingly common example is a small child will grab a bowl of soup off the counter mm-hmm. because they want to be independent or they want to give dad his cup of coffee in the morning right. and they spill it on their arm and they get a terrible burn. So uh, keeping the hot liquids far back on the counter. Again, we all do this. We forget to move the cup of coffee. We forget to keep things out of their reach. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, accidents in the kitchen are a big concern. Hot stoves, there are guards, I think we've probably all seen them, to keep the child away from the flames in the kitchen. Also, educating children about what hot means. So taking your young child and holding their hand, not on the flame, obviously, but above where they feel the heat. Right. And saying, hot, don't touch, so that they really understand from a young age that this is something to be avoided. So some of it's education, some of it is supervision. Yeah, definitely. Well, I know, and you know, it's really, uh, really, in my mind, so goofy. Is uh, Especially on social media, you see a lot of what they call memes, and there's always one, well, when I was a kid, we didn't have safety, we didn't have uh, helmets, and we survived just fine. And I think to myself, yeah, and a trip to the emergency room back then didn't cost like $3,000. Right. <laughs> you know, people forget. I, you hear a lot. Well, they didn't have seatbelts back when some people were kids, too. Right, But yeah. they're still, we all accept them as an excellent safety feature. Right. And that, that brings to mind, John, another issue, which is having your car seat, the proper size car seat and the proper fit. So many of us try and install our own car seats, and it's very difficult. Many people don't know that the fire department has certified car seat installation people. Right. So it's a good idea after you change car seats or move the car seat to another car, drive over to the fire department, let them check it, make sure it's in correctly, tight enough. The incidence of injury restrained in a car versus unrestrained can be the difference between death and walking away from an accident. Right. The very same accident is so different when you're in the proper restraint, even as an adult, versus being unrestrained, because being thrown out of your vehicle is is a tragic outcome. Right. Well, then they also say, you know, one of the biggest accidents, of course, the most common accident is getting hit from behind, and that can cause a huge jolt to the neck. Yes. And that's why now they're recommending children remain facing forward for even longer than they used to. Mm. Uh, of course, if you have tall children, that can be quite a challenge also. Oh, yeah. But I, I saw a commercial on television the other day for a infant car seat that allows them to remain rear-facing longer because there's a leg extension. Ah. But certainly uh, safety in the car. I had a friend that her daughter used to always unbuckle her car seat, and they they had to resort to having a policeman talk to her. Wow. And then she understood that this was really important, but she didn't like being restrained. She didn't like the feel of the, the car seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that can happen. 
and kids, of course, you know, they get independent and they think, uh, well, I'm I'm too big for this now, or I'm I don't need it anymore. And you have to keep uh, reminding them, well, you do. Absolutely, it's just part of the many challenges of being a parent. Right, it's <laughs> too much fun. Anyway, well, let's move on to uh, illnesses like uh, colds or flu. You know, most people don't think much about the symptoms and how bad a uh, cold or a flu can actually become. What should parents look out for? with these types of illnesses that might indicate that it's becoming more serious and require hospitalization? Well, John, that's a very good question. I do want to couch this by saying that uh, this is not medical advice, Mm -hmm. um, but these are general guidelines that what we look for in the emergency room when a child comes in with a cold or a cough, uh, and it can be very difficult. Children tend to hide their difficulty breathing until it's very, very advanced. Mm -hmm. That's the... That is the most disturbing thing about respiratory illnesses. And it can be very difficult to tell when your child's having difficulty breathing. For example, for some children, when they have asthma, they're having an asthma attack, all they have is a cough. And the parent, you know, rightfully so, keeps buying cough syrup and trying a different cough syrup and a different cough syrup, when in fact what they need is treatment for asthma. Hmm. And asthma has become such a common disease. The incidence of asthma has gone through the roof, and sadly, the deaths from asthma as well. Wow. So what you'd want to watch for is a severe cough, a cough that doesn't respond to traditional treatment, or any sort of noisy breathing, or if the child's ribs are sucking in when they're breathing. Those are all signs that they're having trouble. But what I always tell parents is they are the best judge of their child's well-being. And any doctor will tell you, you got to listen to the parents because parents know their children best, they know their babies best, and they know when something is off. They have a very sick sense about that. So if you feel that your child's not doing well, even if you've just been to the pediatrician and you still don't feel comfortable, I suggest you take it to a higher level, take them to the emergency room. It is certainly better to be safe than sorry. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I remember uh, my uh, daughter, when she was uh, maybe seven months old, came down with a really bad cold that kind of lasted a little too long. And the pediatrician we were seeing at the time prescribed a nebulizer, which helped her a lot. And at first she was kind of scared of it. But then when she realized that it was helping her, she grabbed the mask and put it on before I could even get started. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. Even at that young age. But respiratory illnesses can be, you know, a very significant source of hospitalization and emergency room visits. The other, uh, when you talk about colds and things, certainly the child that is inconsolable, certainly a baby, you know, who cannot verbalize. If you cannot get your baby to stop crying, Mm -hmm. that is cause for a doctor visit. Mm. Inconsolable children are, especially in the infant age, are at concern for meningitis, for very serious illnesses, particularly when they have a fever that goes along with it. Mm -hmm. So anytime a child is inconsolable, or certainly your older child who has such a bad sore throat that they're drooling or spitting into a cup instead of swallowing their saliva, those are those are signs that you're way beyond your average sore throat. Right, and it can escalate quickly. And the problem is, of course, the kids can't verbalize what's wrong. 
And, you know, the interesting thing is most young children, say from the ages of 3 to 7 or 8, when they get strep throat and you ask them if their throat hurts, nope, it doesn't hurt. You know what they usually tell you? My stomach hurts. Ah. I have a stomach ache or I have a headache. And you will ask them about their throat and they, they're not aware of it. Uh, many a child parents have brought into the emergency room thinking their child had appendicitis and we almost always do a strep test when children have a stomach ache in the ER because it's that frequent of a cause of a stomach ache. Huh. I didn't know that. So a strep isn't necessarily a sore throat. Not always. Now, of course, the older you get, the better you are at differentiating stomach pain from throat pain. But in your, like I said, strep is pretty rare under the age of two. Mm -hmm. But, you know, from two to seven or eight, it can be very hard to tell. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really important to know that. Yes, and the other thing, children who have pneumonia, they have a infection in their lungs. Sometimes they have very bad stomach pain as well, and it also can cause them to vomit a lot. Oh. So parents might think their child has a bad stomach flu when in fact they have pneumonia that's irritating their diaphragm and causing them to vomit. So what uh, what should they look out for as far as uh, the difference between pneumonia and uh, a regular flu? Is it something that it lasts longer or? Well, the degree of the fever, you know, pneumonia will often have a, a fever you just can't seem to get down. You give them the, the anti-fever medication mm -hmm. and when it wears off, the fever's back. And it can be a very persistent fever and usually um, a lot of coughing or a lot of vomiting can go along with it. Your typical flu, it, it can be hard to tell in the beginning because flu also often has a high fever. So that would really be a reason to see your doctor to have have a good listen to the lungs and have the doctor take a look, perhaps do a flu test as well. Right. Okay. Well, that's great to know that. Now, getting an appointment with a doctor or a specialist can be challenging too, as long as we're talking about that. Uh, sometimes doctors can be running late due to uh, needing longer time with other patients. Uh, so making sure that your child's needs are being addressed as thoroughly as possible is important. What are some of the things that patients and parents can do to make the most of their appointment time with their doctors or their specialists? One thing I always advise parents, if they have a lot of concerns, when they make the appointment, make sure that you explain to the receptionist that I have a number of questions that enough time is allotted for the appointment. Because, for example, if you just tell them one, one item, they'll give you a 10-minute appointment, when in fact you might need a half an hour. So having that relationship with the front desk, if at all possible, if you go to a small office where you know the staff, certainly becoming friendly with them will go a long way towards getting appointments, towards getting enough time booked in, and also for parents who are just starting out, new parents, picking the, the office that will work for you. For example, when you go, when you're pregnant, go interview some pediatrician's offices. See what their hours are like. Ask how they manage sicknesses. Do they have room in the schedule for illness? Does the office have walk-in hours in the morning for sick children? Do they have evening hours? Do they offer hours on the weekend? If it's a solo practitioner, what, who covers for you if it's your day off? So those are all important interview questions. So some of this, John, I think is in the selection of your pediatrician. Um, it can be a lot easier in a group practice to get an appointment. You know, if you have 15 doctors in the office, chances are, hopefully, you can always see somebody. But if you're in a, 
in a solo practitioner, that can be more difficulty because they may be really booked. And often those solo practitioners are such kind and wonderful doctors that they have a lot of patience. But um, having the relationship and also good communication. Good communication cannot be stressed enough. Using the secretary's name, um, being as kind. It's, it's the old, you can get more flies with honey than vinegar. Right. Say, I, I know you're busy. My child is so ill. Try to have already taken the temperature before you call. Have your list of symptoms written down. And it's so difficult when your child is sick, your mind is racing, thinking of all the possibilities. Perhaps you're juggling other children's schedules and wondering if they're going to get sick, or maybe you've got more than one child who's sick. Right. So the more organized and prepared you can be, uh, the better for the appointment. Absolutely. And, And having your questions written down. So when the doctor comes in, you can basically hand them the list of questions. They Doctors love that. Most doctors really enjoy helping patients and answering questions, but I know myself as a parent, when I get in that office, sometimes I forget half of what I had on my mind during the drive over there because the kids are distracting you, you may feel rushed, you may feel nervous. So having those questions written down ahead of time is, a, is my best suggestion and picking the right type of practice for your needs. Right. And particularly if you have a child who has special needs, um, that relationship is even more important where you want to have that personal relationship with that physician who understands your child. So again, having that relationship and although it's extremely challenging, being willing to wait and bringing enough entertainment for your child to get through waiting in an office, even if you have to bring the DVD player, bring the iPad, anything that will keep them occupied and happy for for a prolonged period of time. Right. And that makes a, a lot of sense. And I especially uh, like the idea of interviewing your doctor uh, when you're pregnant for the first time, because that, that's a good way to get to know what pediatricians are out there. And also, if there is going to be a challenge, such as a special needs, I mean, obviously, you want to see a doctor who's going to talk to you first. I, uh, I know it from our personal experience. We uh, went to uh, look for pediatricians, and <clears throat> one of them, just all they did was uh, measure our child uh, and then say, okay, see you in a week. And that was that. So we never went back. Uh, we, Wisely. We like the idea of a doctor who's going to sit down and first get to know you and your child before any examination takes place. Absolutely. I can tell you one time there was a child, a very memorable patient to me, many years back. The mom had brought him into the ER for a cough. You know, he's a young, maybe he was three or four or five, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And this child was very frightened of doctors. And it took, it took me a while to get him calmed down enough to actually hear his heart and hear his lungs. So what did I have to do? I had to play with him. Right. I had to take those few minutes and play with him. And then he was happy and he was calm. And I heard the largest heart murmur I've ever heard. And it turned out that he had to have open heart surgery. And he did fine, but here he had gone all these years, and the mom said to me, no one ever took the time to get him to stop crying and really take a good listen. And that's, a, that's an important message to parents 
to find that doctor who's willing to put down the tablet, put down the computer, play with the child. And you and I both know pediatricians like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're out there. But sometimes they're, they can be tough to find. And it's, it's a magic that is so important. The other thing you can do, John, is ask your friends. Ask around at the preschool. What pediatrician do you use? How do you feel about them? Ask your fellow parents in your, if you're in an autism support group, ask who they're seeing. And you're likely to get some really good recommendations that will best fit you and your child's needs. That's great. Well, speaking of kids who are scared of the doctor, of course, that can be a scary time when you have to go see a doctor, especially in the ER, because it's always for an emergency and the kids are scared anyway. What, can, what are some of the mistakes that parents make when they take their kids to the doctor that can contribute to the fears? And what can parents do to help calm the child down so that the visit isn't scary and can be more productive? That is, that is an art in itself, John. <laughs> I remember a parent, this is before I had children of my own, mm-hmm. who really did it right. So let me use her as an example. This was many years back. Okay. And her child needed stitches. This mom was so calm. I walked in to see the child, and she's like this. Well, you know, he's got a little cut, and we thought we would come and get it checked out. And, you know, she wasn't feeling like this on the inside. But this woman could have had a a degree in fine arts and acting because she appeared so calm on the outside, and guess how her child was? Calm, totally calm. So kids are going to take their cues from their parents. If you have a parent, and I, I have to say I've seen this a lot, the parents like this, oh, my God, he's bleeding, he's bleeding. Uh, well, yes, he's bleeding, but we can take care of this. But the more upset the parent gets, the more the child feels there's to worry about. So trying to remain calm, at least on the outside, even though you don't feel that way on the inside, is the best gift that you can give your child when they have to go through something difficult. Providing the most reassurance through your attitude um, is so helpful. The other thing that you probably won't believe this when I tell you, but it happens a lot, if you don't stop crying, I'm going to tell the doctor to give you a shot. Oh, no. <laughs> really? Oh, yes. Oh, my. Many times. So, of course, we want to avoid using doctors as disciplinary actions. No kidding. Before, even when you're at home, mm-hmm. you certainly want, never want to bring the doctor into some kind of punitive action because then kids start to associate the doctor or the dentist, you know, mm-hmm. with uh, pain and unpleasant experiences. Oh, boy. So, if you find your you're in the emergency room or you're in the doctor's office, you know, your attitude goes a long way, hiding your anxiety, hiding your tears, and, you know, setting that aside somehow. Not that it's easy, certainly, but if you have to, if you have to panic, excuse yourself from the room for a moment and go in the bathroom, collect yourself, and come back. And that's, that's the best way that kids get through things. They have to know that their parent thinks this is going to be okay, and they will often follow suit. Not that they're not going to be scared and upset, too, but it it sure helps when the parent is calm. Right. It just makes more sense. I mean, uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I had stitches in both my knee and in my forehead from two different accidents. 
which I don't need to get into, but uh, in both situations, my mom was perfectly calm about it. Whether or not she actually was, I don't know. But uh, she just said, well, okay, we'll go to the doctor and we'll get this taken care of. Mm-hmm. And uh, she just said, they'll be all right. And I think that really helped me because <laughs> I know I was I was freaking out at first. Oh, sure. Which is what you do. But uh, Absolutely. Yeah. As they say, it's when the parent needs to step in and be a parent. Well, the other thing, John, I wanted to bring up is being honest with your child. Mm-hmm. Honest, but in a, in a put a positive spin on it. Right. For example, is that shot going to hurt? Well, it is going to. It's going to hurt for a moment, mm-hmm. and then they'll be all done. So I believe in being truthful, but also leave some room for hope. Um, if your child has to have something very painful done, for example, um, a spinal tap or uh, having a bo- bone set in the emergency room, mm-hmm. then you ask for the proper medication to be given to keep your child comfortable. Right. Um, we're, we'll talk more later, I hope, about patient rights, but you have a right to be comfortable and to be respected, and the same should be offered to your child. So if it's going to hurt like crazy, you ask for the proper pain management. Would that be a conversation I would have in front of my child? No. That would be something I would talk about in the hallway. Right. Um, if, if it's a procedure where, let's say, the child has to have an IV started, there is a cream they can put on the skin that will numb the skin, but it has to be on there for about 30 minutes. So if you want to have that cream put on, you're going to slow down your care in the emergency room quite a bit. But do know that that is an option, and I am a strong proponent of children not having painful experiences because as an adult, they tend to still fear medical care Many adults won't go to the dentist because of childhood experiences. So while I'm not a dentist, I do advocate also to find a a dentist who will provide the proper sedation and the proper pain control when the child has to have dental procedures done. Because those things really, you know, these are like little blank slates that we're working on. And what I always, you know, I've always had a soft heart for children for that reason, because they're so fresh and we can make a positive impact or we can really leave a lasting negative impact. And the same goes for parents. When my child has to have surgery, I need to be truthful. Yes, you are going to be in pain and I'm going to treat your pain with medicine to make it better. But, you know, you need to tell me when I ask you if it's hurting, you know, you need to help me if the child's able to verbalize, that is. Then we get back to the discussion of you knowing your child best. And I would say all parents, that is the case. They understand their child. They understand their facial expressions. They understand their behavior. And they, you know, you can work best for your child, always. Right. Now, all medical personnel, whether it's doctors or nurses or staff members, you know, they're, they're people just like everybody else, and they can have bad days. And also, just like in any profession, there are some doctors and nurses who really shouldn't be doctors or nurses due to attitude problems. What could parents do when, you know, to put it bluntly, the doctor or the nurse is a jerk? Oh, yep. That's a challenge. So let's start if you're in the office. Mm-hmm. So you go... And you take your child in for their routine physical, and they have to have vaccines. 
the nurse comes in the room and she's surly with you or she's not nice to your child, you can ask for someone else to come in. Say, you know, I'm really not comfortable with you taking care of my child. So if we use words like comfortable, not comfortable, uh, it's not offensive, and it certainly doesn't, I don't like to create drama in front of children. Um, so I, I suggest remaining as calm as you can and politely asking them to get somebody else. Right. When, when my oldest child was young, we went to the pediatrician at, I remember it was six months old, for a checkup, and the nurse came back with the vaccines, and she said, okay, have him sit up. And I said, what? And she says, have him, I think he was four months old. Mm-hmm. Have him sit up. I said, what for? Well, we always give 18-month-olds vaccines sitting up in their arm. So this nurse, if you think about it, she didn't, I didn't know if she had the right vaccines, the right patient. She certainly had his age wrong. Yeah. And he, she, he certainly did not look 18 months old. No. So you can imagine I asked that nurse to leave, and I asked the vaccines to be destroyed and new ones to be drawn up because I had lost all confidence in that moment, in that situation. Well, it's a good thing that, you know, at least you were a doctor and knew this side of type of thing. There's a lot of parents out there who might not even associate that uh, wrong age, but, you know, the vaccines may still get administered, even though they clarified, oh, it's the wrong age. You know, it's only four months. He's not 18 months. And it takes a lot of courage for a parent to speak up and say, I don't want you giving the shots, and I don't want those shots given by anybody else because I'm not sure what's in those vials. Right. Many parents probably think about that, but having the courage to speak up is such an important point to be made here because particularly when you have a child who obviously can't speak for themselves. And the other other thing I want to mention is doctors, as you mentioned earlier, John, can have bad days too, and sometimes that gets passed on to the patient's Try as we may, sometimes we find a doctor that is not going to work well for our particular situation. And even as adults, we have the same issues, but particularly this is important with children because, again, that blank slate I mentioned earlier, we're creating permanent impressions in our children's experience bank for adulthood. So if you get to the emergency room and you get a doctor who appears impatient or rushed or dismissive of your concerns, the first thing that I would do is speak to the nurse. And sometimes the nurse may be able to intercede or give you some insight on the doctor's temperament, shall we say. And in most emergency rooms, unless it's a very small one, there's usually more than one doctor working. So if you can't work this out with your doctor, ask to see someone else. And if they tell you, no, that just can't be, and you calmly address your concerns with the nurse, or if if you feel that you can, bring it up to the physician that perhaps we got off to the wrong start. You know, I'm only concerned about my child here. Perhaps their attitude will change. That That can happen. Sometimes we don't realize how we sound. But if that is not working, then, and you can't get another doctor, you can then ask for the charge nurse in the emergency room. She's the nurse that kind of is managing the whole room at that particular time and see if that uh, will get you anywhere. Then if that doesn't work, there's like a whole chain in the hospital. Let's say that your child is in a situation where you really can't drive off to another emergency room. You're kind of, quote-unquote, stuck where you are. Right. 
and you feel stuck with the care that you're getting, you can then ask for the hospital patient advocate to come. Um, unless, of course, it's the middle of the night, then they won't be working. But you can ask the patient advocate to come to your bedside, see if they can intervene. Then you can take it as far as risk management. Risk management department of the hospital is a department that wants to avoid lawsuits because they are the ones that have to handle the lawsuits against the hospital. And oftentimes just asking for their phone number, you will see a huge change in behaviors and attitudes. When people realize that they're being monitored or if you start writing down what's going on, oftentimes that's enough to get people to lighten up and sweeten up and take the time to listen. Right. Now there's, there's of course, uh, like you said, there's a process and a, a way of approaching this. I mean, you don't say, the doctor says, well, no, I don't think he needs that right now. And you say, well, I want risk management's phone number right away. Right. Don't right. escalate things immediately. I mean, follow, follow the protocol. Absolutely. That is a last resort. John, let's think about whether, let's say you get a diagnosis that you don't agree with. Right. Or you want your child to receive an antibiotic, for example, and the doctor says, no, they're not, you're not getting one. So that's where we have to remain our most calm and rational selves, even though we may not be feeling that way on the inside, and say, perhaps, doctor, you can help me to understand better why my child is not getting an antibiotic. They've had a fever for 10 days. Um, this is what has been typical for them in the past when they've had sinusitis. So let the, give the doctor a chance to better educate you, so to speak. They won't be offended with that language. And just those good communication skills. And try and be respectful of the ER doctor's time because they frequently are managing 15 or more patients at one time. So the more succinct you can be and the kinder uh, you are, the better off, you know, it'll probably go. Now, in the case of where you don't agree with the treatment, let's say they want to give your child a, a medication that you know gives your child bad side effects, you know, it, you can bring up to the physician, I, I hear what you're saying, but this is what happens to my child when they take this particular medication. Is there another one that would work as well that would not give him these side effects? Right. There can be allergic reactions and all kinds of problems. Well, allergic reactions most doctors will respect, but oftentimes it's side effects. So allergic reaction, this is a good thing to talk about because many people confuse side effects with allergic reaction. For example, when I take Benadryl, I get drowsy. Well, that's a side effect. It's not an allergy. Um, when I... You know, when my child takes antibiotics, they get diarrhea. Well, that's not an allergy. It's, it's a side effect, a significant one, but uh, it's something your child could take if they needed to save their life, but you might prefer that another medication is chosen in its place. You see the difference? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we're talking about here is unpleasant side effects right. where you really don't want to have to deal with the nausea of codeine, for example. Right. Is there another pain reliever you can give my child for their broken bone? Codeine makes him throw up, and then he'll have a sore arm and vomiting. Right, and he won't want to take the medicine again because he's going to be throwing it up. Right, and it could be a really simple solution such as I'll give your child the anti-nausea medication, you give that 20 minutes before the codeine, and then all will be well. And that, 
that could be your solution right there. But if, if the parent doesn't have that conversation with the doctor, you're going to leave very dissatisfied and really not having received the care that you were expecting. Right. So it's all about communication and doing your best to keep calm. Absolutely. A positive attitude and, you know, we certainly never want to get into situations of name-calling or finger-pointing or yelling. That doesn't help. It usually makes people more resistant to helping you. And, and actually, in some cases, especially with the children, the emergency department could take custody of your children. Hmm. It's a horrible thought. I didn't know that. But parents who are really poorly behaved, the ER can start to worry that your children are not going to be treated correctly either. So you've got to be so careful to not put yourself in that situation. Right. I didn't know that was an op- option for... Uh... A situation that gets out of control. It it can be. Well, and I can tell you that that's frequently, not frequently done. It's it's something that we try and be very careful not to make that call unless, for example, the child has a life-threatening illness and the parent wants to take them home. We can't allow that. And in that case, the ER will take custody of the child temporarily so that they can receive the medical treatment that they need. Right. So... Right, but that's always last resort. It's totally last resort. Right. Now, of course, you know, doctors and nurses are mandated reporters. Right. So if they see uh, particular injuries that are commonly indicative of child abuse, then the doctor has an obligation to report those findings. But when we're talking about a disagreement in care, that's not usually, that usually doesn't come to pass unless it's a life-threatening condition right and the parent is not agreeing to treatment for that condition right so yeah we'll make that distinction this is not going to be over uh, a medicine that makes the kid throw up it'll be something altogether right different. it'll be something dire i right. should i should make that more clear yeah no, that's i okay. apologize no don't worry about it it's just uh one of those uh possibilities you know and as, well, as an know, er doc you've seen it all yes yeah unfortunately you've seen it all but on the other hand i'm here to help parents and to try and navigate the ER, it's never easy, mm-hmm. and it's never a place that anybody wants to end up, but how to navigate it with the least amount of trauma to your child, number one, and number two, the best care. So we don't want to be over-treated, and we don't want to be under-treated right. or have our children you know, go through things that they don't need to. So parents asking questions is, should be welcomed, and those questions should be answered and certainly not meant with not met with, I'm going to take custody of your child. That's not what I meant to say. Yeah, no. Oh, well, no, but we just want to clarify, you know, that these are extremes and they don't normally happen. Absolutely. Not normally. Well, now, one of the things that I also want to bring up, because we talked about, you know, uh, physicians who have a lot of things going on in the ER and, like you said, up to 15 patients or more at any given time. And how much time it takes in the ER is a big issue right now. And obviously, if a patient comes in in an ambulance and has a life-threatening situation, they're going to get priority. But people who have problems that aren't life-threatening tend to have to wait based on how bad their situation is. Now, there are hospitals that advertise that they'll see patients in their ER in under 30 minutes no matter what. Is that uh, a good way to do it, or can there be drawbacks to that? Well, you know, it depends how the emergency room is set up. I believe that many of these centers that are offering these wait time guarantees have basically two emergency departments within one. And one is for minor ailments, and they probably have, 
either physician assistants or nurse practitioners staffing those areas. So children with earaches, uh, adults with a sore throat, where it's a fairly uncomplicated situation, hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, where they'll be treated in a whole separate area by different staff. Ah, okay. And, of course, when you get into your trauma centers, they're going to have separate staff for trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, regular ER doctors don't typically handle the trauma cases. So there, if there's enough staffing and enough rooms, I suppose it is a possibility. Mm-hmm. But if it's at the expense of good care, I wouldn't agree with it. Right. So it really depends upon the size of the ER and the size of the hospital. And, uh... and how much staff. And the other thing is, just because you get into a room within 30 minutes doesn't tell you how long you're going to be until you're discharged. Exactly. So it may be... Hurry, hurry, get in the room so we can write down that you're within within half hour. But discharge time could be another story. Yeah, several and hours. <laughs> physicians are under terrible pressure mm-hmm. business-wise to move patients through. And right. that's something that there's no easy answer for that. But as patients and as parents of children, we have to advocate for ourselves and for our children. And that's my passion is to help educate and help prepare people for unexpected health circumstances. I think maybe the best way to approach an ER is to just realize that even though it's an emergency and you got to get things done quickly, understand that it's probably going to take a few hours. That's true. Yep. And the other, this falls back to what we were discussing earlier is, do you have a, a, the type of pediatric office that can handle, can you get a quick appointment and avoid the ER? And that, um, you know, some pediatric offices have lab, they have x-ray. There are some pediatric offices out there that are very comprehensive. The other thing is, I don't know if you have it in your area, but in, in my area, immediate medical care orthopedic offices have cropped up. So if you, you know, your child falls and they have a painful elbow, rather than going to the regular hospital emergency room, you can go to the orthopedic-only emergency room, and it's it's fantastic. They have x-ray. They have every type of splint, brace, cast, crutch imaginable. I mean, you can actually see an orthopedic surgeon from the day one wow. and get your injury on the road to recovery. It's really a wonderful thing that's happened. I'm very happy to see it. That's fantastic. Well, I know, Bia, well, you're in Chicago, of course, uh, third largest city in the country. So, uh and I'm sure in other major areas there aren't, but uh, smaller cities may not quite have that yet, but it would be interesting to see that happen more. That's true. I'm hoping it'll be a growing trend because, you know, children suffer so many orthopedic, bony, muscular-type injuries. And right. Parents are always left wondering, is this a fracture, is this a sprain? And really, you can't tell. You cannot tell without the X-ray. Right. So in that case, if you're in a community that doesn't offer... You may not be aware of walk-in orthopedic care. You may have to look on your Internet and see what's in your area. You might be surprised. Right. But I tell parents, too, to have a list written down of who am I going to see if this arises. For example, where do I go for my child's dental emergencies? I would not head to the ER for a dental emergency because you know what they're going to do? They're going to call your dentist. Oh. So if your child knocks a tooth out, you do need immediate advice on what to do. Right. But make sure that you have a dentist who's responsive to after-hours calls and emergency calls. So again, just like you interview your pediatrician before you bring your child in, you got to interview the dentist as well.
And are you, you know, how do you feel about handling pediatrics? How do you feel about pediatric dental emergencies? Do you have time in your schedule? Because those, you know, tooth situations do have to be handled in a timely manner to save the tooth. Right. And that's an interesting thing because you do know uh, when I call around to various doctor's offices um, and you get that uh, long-winded voicemail (laughs) message, but one of the things that a lot of offices say is, if this is an emergency, hang up and call 911. That's true. And that's not always a good idea, though, because, like you said, a hospital is going to call the dentist anyway. Right. Now, if your child has just fallen and whacked their jaw and hit their head, I would certainly head to the ER. Hmm. Again, this is not meant as medical advice. Right. But, you know, um, consulting your dentist when it's strictly a dental emergency can save you that trip to the ER. Right. But if, if other injuries are involved, that may that would not be appropriate. Right, because you're looking at a concussion at that particular right. point. Yeah, and, and head injuries are they're on the rise as well. Yeah, that's great advice. Now, um, we did mention earlier, and you were asking about this, so uh, I might as well take a point here and uh, just go right to it. What rights do patients have when it comes to visit the or visiting the emergency room? Uh, what can a patient expect in... Uh, and what kind of uh, course of action uh, is allowed under under that? Well, it's it's different for children. Um, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, child, parents do not have the same rights for their choosing for their children that an adult would have for choosing for themselves. And the way the law sees it as parents don't have the medical training and education to always make the best choices for their children. Hmm. So in some cases where it's life and death, for example, your child's in, a, in an accident and has, has a need for a blood transfusion, for example. Right. Now, this is very controversial, of course, but you may not have the choice of whether your child receives blood oh. because of, you know, if it's considered a life-saving measure, and hopefully most doctors would discuss it with you and help you to understand the reason why certain things are being done. So just keep in mind that children, parents don't have the same rights as an adult patient. An adult patient couldn't go to the hospital with a heart attack and refuse treatment. Right. If your child is having a heart attack, which they do once in a blue moon, a parent would not be able to refuse treatment ah. for their child. Okay. But let's look at rights that they do have. You do have a right to high-quality care. You should be treated with skill and compassion and respect. Um, if you have pain, your pain should be treated. You have the right to know who's taking care of you. Are you being treated by a, a doctor, a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner? Who's involved in your care? You need to know if it's a medical student or a resident or other people who are in training. So everybody should be well identified. And in my experience, that's usually the case. Um, clean, cleanliness and safety in the hospital. So we we hope that the hospital is clean and that they use procedures, for example, with medication administration. We have a right to medication safety, and medication errors are a, a very big issue in hospitals with the giving the right medication, the right dose to the right patient. Mm-hmm. There are, there are many issues with medication, with sound-alike medications. Yeah, well, like that incident you had with your own son when they were going to give him an 18-month-old vaccine, even though he was four months. Yes, the mistakes were made there. 
Before your child receives a medication, they should verify your child's identity. They should tell you what the doctor has ordered. And I always say, ask to see the label, okay? So if the nurse has a, a pill, um, ask to see it in the package that you're getting what the doctor ordered. It's never, never a problem, and it should be the case that things are reviewed before they're given. You have a right to know what's going to happen um, if you're hospitalized, what's going to happen during your stay. So, well, your child has pneumonia, they're going to be admitted, they're going to receive intravenous antibiotics, they're going to receive intravenous fluids, you know, the reasons for your hospital stay. And how, what procedures are they using to make sure that mistakes are not made during your child's care? Parents have the right to be involved in their child's care. The doctor really should review with you the benefits and the risks of the treatment and what your child and you can expect from the treatment for long-term, any long-term effects that might be left behind. And when you leave the hospital, what you need to do to take care of your child after you leave. Discussing those conditions and having information about treatment choices, very important. Mm -hmm. You should hopefully see, view your physician as a partner in your child's care. You are the other half of the, the relationship. So if your child has a chronic condition, um, again, that relationship is so key in being able to have open discussion with your physician about your concerns and your child's concerns and how it's going. Right. And in, and in situations, too, where, uh, you know, a parent of a special needs child that is, uh, we just know from history and the future that this is a child that's probably going to be going to the ER uh, more often than not. And so establishing a relationship sometimes with the doctors in the ER can be helpful as well. They almost become like the second uh, primary care physician at sometimes. Absolutely. One thing I would like to bring up that is very helpful is for, for anyone, child or adult, who has chronic conditions, what I suggest is you get a two-pocket folder and you have in there a, a medical history for your child. So that when you go to each, each specialist that your child sees, you can have them write up a brief summary of their medical history from that physician. So have all of these histories in this folder. Um, reports from past surgeries are also very helpful. All medications and dietary supplements. A lot of parents forget about including vitamins and dietary supplements because some of those can interfere with antibiotic use and other medications. So in this folder so far you've got your past medical illnesses, surgeries, hospital stays, reports, Allergic reactions to medication, very important. Also, side effects. So if you know your child reacts negatively to a particular medication, mark it down. And also, an understanding of your health plan. Any uh, preauthorization for admission or if you have to use a particular hospital network, it's really key to understand those things before you decide to go to the hospital. Uh, otherwise, it can cost you a lot more money if you're out of network. Oh, yeah, definitely. If you have all this in a folder, along with a list of all the physicians your child sees and their phone numbers, you will make the doctor's day when you come in. <laughs> oh, I'll bet, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, if you're in an emergency, boy, is it nice to have all that ready. You don't even have to think that much when you get to the hospital. So this is something that provides for really good care 
because a doctor will have a thorough understanding of your child's past medical history and all the information they need right there to take very good care of your child. And you know what? This gives your, the doctor more time to spend with you and your child if all of that is written out ahead of time. Right, so the doctor can just take a look at it and know exactly what's going on. And, right. And, you know, that can be done in between visits, you know, to oh, the doctor's absolutely. office. Now, it's something, obviously, that'll take a little while to compile, but, uh, you, you know, if you have it ready, then from then on, it's easy to keep it updated. Oh, yes. Like, a, you know, you can... You can have this modified, or you can even do it handwritten. So let's say, you know, you're, you know you're going to the doctor in a week. You could call ahead or send a note ahead asking them to get this ready for you. Probably just, you don't want to just throw a package of records in the folder. That's too much for a doctor to go through. What they really would like is just a basic summary. This child has a history of asthma, three hospitalizations, um, you know, uh, and that type of thing. But we probably don't want to just include all of the records of the child. That would could be very thick. Right. <laughs> so just brief summaries. But this will go a long way to good care. Right. Right. Makes communication a whole lot easier. And as we say, that's the, that's the most important part of it all. Yep. Now, when we talk about treatment plan, let's say your child has appendicitis. They need to have their appendix removed. Uh, now, there are actually alternative treatments for appendicitis that don't involve surgery. Now, you may not be at a, a center that offers that, but it asks, it helps to ask, are there other options available for my child's treatment? Now, some of it may be experimental. You may not be comfortable with that. So they should tell you if something is experimental or if it's a proven, uh, you know, treatment. You have the right to consent or, or refuse treatment within the limits that we talked about earlier. And you have the right to decide or not decide to participate in research. Sometimes, you know, in certain situations where the good options have run out, sometimes experimental treatment is all that's left, and it may be a very good option. So that's something, again, you know, having that discussion with your physician. Right, and that's going to be an in-depth discussion, too. I mean, this is obviously something that uh, may require other appointments, do you think? Or uh... Absolutely. And on that note, I want to add, too, if your child is being discharged from the emergency room and let's say they need to see a dermatologist, they have an unusual rash that nobody can figure out, mm-hmm. and rashes can be very tricky. Um, if you simply leave with the name of a dermatologist, it might be six months before you can get in. Ah. It can be a very long wait for some of these specialists. The thing to do if you can get the ER doctor to do it is have them speak to the physician themselves. Ah. And tell them that you'll be calling. That usually will get you in much faster. Ah, good. Because you know a rash is not. Uh, most rashes will uh, clear up within that six month time frame. Well, it's just a long time to wait with a child who might be itchy or uncomfortable. Um, you know, and rashes can be an indicator of things going on on the inside of the body. Not usually, but sometimes they can be. It can be important to discover the cause of particular rashes. But even rashes that are more chronic, like eczema, you, you probably still don't want to wait six months for to see a dermatologist if you've been concerned enough to, to go to the emergency room over it. Right, right. So if you can get the doctor to call ahead, and then when you call the office, you say that the ER doctor spoke with Dr. Smith yesterday, usually you can get in much quicker than if you just call cold call. Right. Or if, if the ER doctor 
might not be able to do that, would would a call from a nurse or someone else in the ER uh, be of help? Well, usually how it works is this, the front office secretary will actually make the call, and when the doctor gets on the phone, they'll call the doctor over. Ah, call. okay. So they may not actually initiate the call, but... Right, but it's still... Now, if they're not willing to do that, then when you call this office, you may have to do a little begging and sweet-talking to get a sooner appointment. And that usually is best done by expressing your concern for your child, asking if they have, an, if they have a cancellation, could you be called? Right. That frequently will work. Or you follow up with your, call your pediatrician in the morning and see if they're willing to call the dermatologist and have you seen sooner. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's always that third uh, or that secondary. Yeah. So having that good relationship is, is extremely important. Now let's talk about um, the Internet and uh, medical stuff on the Internet because one of the biggest problems of having so much information available online is there a tendency with people self-diagnosing, in other words, you know, coming up with their own ideas of what their symptoms and illnesses they have, which, of course, well, that that goes, of course, the most extreme of that being hypochondria. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, should patients and parents spend a lot of time researching medical information on the Internet about a suspected problem, or is it better just to go straight to their medical doctor and, and specialist and talk to them? Well, I think ideally... If you can get your information from the medical specialist, because I know myself, you know, when you go online and use Dr. Google, as I call it, <laughs> you can get yourself in a, in a panic. Right. And that may not even be your particular situation, but you can read some very inaccurate information, some very frightening inaccurate information, and cause you unneeded, unnecessary anxiety. So I would say you have to... Pick your sites carefully. For example, I really like mayoclinic.org for medical information. The American Academy of Pediatrics is, is the professional organization that your pediatricians belong to. They have a website, and they'll have information for parents. But I would, I would recommend not overusing the Internet for your medical information. Right. Now, I will say support groups I'm a big fan of especially for children with chronic conditions or special needs, being able to speak to other parents who are going through similar things or have gone through the same types of things that you have, it, it can make all the difference in the world. And they can give you practical advice that most doctors may not have that insight into of how the real world, you know, what happens after you leave the hospital when you have a child with a broken arm, for example. You know, how do we really keep that cast dry? Well, I can tell you that, you know, sometimes you read some great advice on the Internet how to keep the cast dry. So I don't want to rule it out, but you have to be careful where you get your information from. But support groups for chronic conditions can be very helpful to deal with the emotional aspects of caring for a child with chronic medical conditions. Right, right. And, you know, um, because also, as you said, the doctor knows what's going on with your child and, you know, they may have some of the symptoms, but they don't have all the symptoms and it may turn out to be something entirely different and you spend your entire afternoon researching a subject that is completely inappropriate or completely, you know, the wrong thing that your uh, child actually has. Absolutely. And um, even skin rashes 
because so many rashes, the, the photos really aren't very good, and, and rashes are tricky anyways. Parents will look on the Internet and think that their child's rash looks like that picture of, of uh, leukemia, and they're, they come in really upset because they, they now have convinced themselves their child has leukemia, when in fact it's just a, it's another form of rash that's not anything of that sort. So, yeah, it can, it can cause you un, unnecessary worry. Right. There's also another uh, interesting phenomenon that I heard about uh, listening to an interview on another uh, place altogether. But uh, some ER doctors are now talking about a syndrome known as the house syndrome from watching the TV show House. Oh. That uh, it has to be, it can't just be a normal normal uh, or regular disease it has to be something exotic and crazy that only one person in 300 billion would actually get you know I've, I've never seen that program but i've heard a lot of patients mention it right well i saw it on house last night right i guess i should watch that sometime. well it's it's but, no i don't think it's actually on anymore i'm not really oh, sure okay. i don't watch it much either but it's a you know it's a show where they you know it's not just some routine thing it's this huge complex issue that nobody ever gets and becomes life threatening and while it makes great drama it's completely inaccurate for over 98% of things that people go to the ER for you know it's when you mention this it makes me think of something that medical students are taught in training to think of the common causes first rather than the rear and they used to say when you hear Hoofbeats think horses, not zebras. So most of us have common conditions. A few of us have rare disorders, but most people have what's common. Right. There's a reason why they're rare. Right. It's because nobody gets them. <laughs> but it's, it's, especially when it involves our children, I think we, we worry a lot and we read a lot and we try and inform ourselves as much as we can, but it can, going to the correct source of information is very important. And you also don't want to under-treat. For example, your, your child has a stomach ache. You don't want to assume it's constipation. I mean, it, it could be something more, and you really need to contact the doctor to help you sort that out. And even there, it can be tricky because stomach aches can seem kind of like nothing in the beginning, and they can get worse. So as I said earlier, and I can't stress it enough, if you feel like things are not going in the right direction for your child, you need to go back to the doctor or go to the emergency room. It's, you know, you don't want to sit home and have a bad feeling about something and then have regrets later on that, you know, perhaps your child could have been treated sooner. Well, I know you mentioned a couple of websites already, like the Mayo Clinic and uh, other places, but are there any other good research websites for parents to use that will give them credible uh, information? Well, for, for pediatrics specifically, the, the AAP, I believe it's aap.org, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Now, that's going to be very conventional. Um, they're not they're not going to suggest alternative treatments or holistic therapies. So if if you're leaning in those directions, then you have to look at other websites, and I wish I could think of something right off the bat. But WebMD has reliable information as well, but really not specifically focused towards children. And children can have very different presentations of the same illness as an adult. They They don't always have the same symptoms, they don't respond the same to particular medications. So children really are a special population. 
So you're really better off just, just sticking with uh, seeing a pediatric doctor or the emergency doctor and talking to them about it and getting all the advice from there. Absolutely. And you know, um, a growing field that I find really interesting is called integrative medicine. Have you heard of it? No. Well, an integrative medicine physician, for example, there's a doctor in San Francisco at University of California, San Francisco, and he is a pediatric neurologist as well as a pediatrician and also has training in integrative medicine. So think of, um, you know, when he treats a neurologic disorder, he's going to look at your whole child, their diet, their lifestyle, how much sleep they're getting. They're not just going to get out the prescription pad. They're going to look at the whole picture. I really like integrative medicine because it's very holistic. And they also may be more open to using nutritional supplements and checking vitamin levels in the blood. So they have the traditional medical training, but they are also looking at your child as a whole person, which I think is so important. And I know so many parents that have had wonderful results with what some doctors might consider not to be mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had we had a doctor here for a while that we were seeing uh, my wife and I, not uh, not our kids, unfortunately. But he was uh, he was first a pharmacist. He became a pharmacist first, and then decided to become a medical doctor. And I yeah, always that's awesome training. Yeah, I always thought now that's a a great way to do it because the first thing he would do whenever we talked about any kind of medication is he would pull his brand new every year he get a new huge book of all the medicines from the pharmacology uh, association or whatever it was right. and he would go through every single medicine and look at all their benefits and their side effects and uh, based on what it would say there he would say well you know what that isn't going to work with this so let's skip through the the medical book and find or the medicine book and find uh, something that will work that's very that's a nice combination to find right if you can find one they're not they're kind of rare i mean we just happened to stumble across him we were lucky there but uh you know it, it certainly helps i think because pharmacology is such a such a complex field of study absolutely you know i mean doctors get some of that and they work really hard to stay updated but they they don't get everything together the way a pharmacist does too so really a pharmacist, too, is another important factor of this whole thing when you're talking about medicine, making sure that the pharmacist also knows what's going on. And, you know, I people laugh at me when I say I have a personal relationship with a pharmacist, but the, the reality is all of us should know our pharmacist by first name, and they should know you, so that if you have questions on medication or can my child take this medication with this over-the-counter product, you can get that advice and feel confident that you're, you know, safely medicating your child, especially if it's after hours. You don't want to call your doctor to see if you can give cough syrup. You feel kind of like you're over, overdoing it. That's great information for the pharmacist to give you. And the other, what you made me think of years back, a friend of mine in medical school, he was going into pediatrics, and he said to me, I get all of this because I had cancer as a child. I understand all, every tube. I've had every IV, every type of special tube you could have. He'd been through it all, and it made him very compassionate and very empathetic towards his patients. 
And so sometimes uh, doctors who've gone through some things themselves can be a, a real asset as well as the medical training. So that's why it's important, again, like you said, get to know your doctor, get to know your pediatrician on a personal level. Absolutely. And can't always. it's not always easy to find that person. It may take may take a few trips to different offices, but keep trying because it's very important, especially when you're dealing with children and you're dealing with special needs. Not everybody is comfortable treating children with special needs and finding that physician who can work best for you and make your child feel comfortable. Right. And one thing I've noticed, too, about establishing a good relationship is it, it can start just as simply as just asking them, well, how's your day going? So many people, yeah, so many people approach physicians or pharmacists or nurses as though they're, you know, something other than human. Right. They're really, you know, they're just people too. And just say, well, how's your day going? Yeah. And sometimes it's not going so well. They they may or may not share that with you, but they may also say, oh, my kid had the same symptoms as yours last week. So that can be, you know, reassuring or they've had the same, let's say, behavioral challenges that you're having with your child right now. Um, I think probably I have a dear friend who's a pediatrician. She said, oh, my goodness, the advice I gave before I was, became a parent, I shudder to think <laughs> the things I told people. Right. So, you know, finding a doctor who has children is probably also another very helpful aspect. Right. Because there's nothing like being a parent to really get children. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, they're all people and they all have, even in, the, you know, the the head of the... Uh, pediatric department at the major university is still someone who goes home at night with a family or has some kind of somebody somewhere, Yeah, you know, and just, you know, just say, well, you know, as you're talking, just say, by the way, how's your day going? You know, you're all right. Right. (laughs) You know, if they look like they're harried or something like that. And also, you know, um, saying, uh, is this too many questions for one day? You know, should I come back and make another appointment to continue this discussion? Being respectful of the time, um, yet still getting the answers that you need. So that's that's key. And right. And sometimes the answers can be handled by a nurse in the office over the phone rather than at the actual appointment. Yeah. So if you're willing to, if you say, well, you know, should I call one of the nurses, call your nurse and follow up with uh, her or him? Uh, that might go a long way too. Sure. If if you feel comfortable with that. Hmm. And the other thing, too, that we didn't talk about was, oh, I guess we brushed on it. If you show up a few minutes early, sometimes your doctor may have had someone who didn't show or they finished early and you can get a few more minutes in or you can get seen earlier. Not always, but sometimes that can work to your advantage. So being patient, being flexible, and being kind is just like everybody else in life, you know, goes a long way to having that good relationship. And doctors recognize parents who really are committed to good care for their children. They know that they're reliable. They know if they tell the parent to bring them back tomorrow, they're going to be there. That can make a big difference, too, even with, let's use the case of abdominal pain. Right now, the abdominal pain seems like it's not a surgical matter, but here's what you need to watch for, and here's when I need to see your child again. It might be that I need to see them this afternoon, four hours later, to check it again. So having that good relationship where the doctor knows they can count on you to follow up and to do as, you're, as you've been asked to do is huge. My thanks again to our good friend, Dr. Patricia Schultz, for all of her great information. 
And I'm pleased to be able to announce that Dr. Schultz has agreed to become a regular contributor to Special Parents Confidential. She'll be writing articles for our blog on medical news for special needs kids, as well as being part of upcoming podcast episodes about specific medical issues that parents will want to know. A quick disclaimer that Dr. Schultz's contributions, including this episode, are for informational purposes only. Always talk to your family physician or pediatrician before trying any kind of medical treatment, therapy, or medication. As we always do at this point, a reminder that if you like this episode of Special Parents Confidential or any episode that we've done, please share our website with your friends, family, and all your connections on social media. You can do this easily with the social media buttons on our website. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, add us on Google+, Tumblr, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Double Upon, Reddit, Instagram, or any of the other social media sites you prefer. You can also sign up for our email service and have new posts and podcast episodes delivered right to your inbox the moment they're available online. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Pod Directory as a free subscription. And if you have a moment, feel free to write a review about our podcast on those services. Anything you can do to help spread the word about Special Parents Confidential will help us be able to continue these podcasts. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.